Today on the Potential Psychology Podcast. This is really good news. Pregnancy and motherhood are not causing cognitive decline. (laughs) That is good to know. Yeah, and people are going, oh, as if that's, well, there must be something wrong with the test. Actually, it's quite good that you're not suffering from cognitive decline because I think then we would have a real problem. Because if we were measuring something, you know, there was some kind of measure there where we were seeing a clinical level of decline, like we might see in someone elderly or someone suffering from dementia or perhaps someone with some other kind of cognitive deficit, then there will be real cause for concern. So it's actually a good thing. Mm. We're not necessarily always picking anything up. And if we do pick it up, it's still well within the normal bounds of standard memory. So we can say that there is a subjective perception of baby brain, but the objective measures aren't picking that up. Welcome to the Potential Psychology Podcast. I'm your host, psychologist Ellen Jackson, and this is the show in which we explore what it is to be human and how we as humans can fulfill our potential. Welcome back to the Potential Psychology Podcast. I am here today with a, I'm going to call her a fairly frequent guest to the show. I think you're one of the few people who are making a third, I think it's a third time appearance. I think it is. I'll have to, I don't say yes, I'm not as as prepared as I ought to be, but I'm pretty sure it's a third time around. Dr. Sarah Mackay, neuroscientist, science communicator, I'm going to call you an online educator. We could perhaps talk a little Ooh. bit about that too, um, a little further down the track. And author. And author is particularly pertinent today because this week your new book, Sarah, is released. It is called Baby Brain. And I'm going to get the subtitle right here. The Surprising Neuroscience of How Pregnancy and Motherhood Sculpt Our Brains and Change Our Minds for the Better. And I love the little for the better in the parentheses at the end there of the title. So how are you first? I'm very good. Lovely to have you back. I'm, I'm so happy to be, you know, the hard work pays off when you get to talk about the book. So this is the best part. Excellent. And and this is kicking off, you were just saying off here, mm-hmm. kicking off what would yeah. be a little um, publicity tour. Do you get to travel? Do you get to go overseas, do anything exciting no, as part no. of that? It's or it's all local? Published. We're just in Australia at the moment. I am doing a talk to Columbia University via Zoom in a few weeks, and I think I'm going to Canberra. Oh. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's, the, that's the extent of it at the moment. It's not as glam as people think it is. No. Nowadays, the Zoom, so people just... Yeah. Yes, I yeah. suppose that's it. I mean, this is going to get entirely off topic, but I suppose that is one of the downsides. You know, I keep thinking, oh, look, it's so much better for business travel and the planet if we don't have people on aeroplanes trooping from here to there and they can, you know, mm-hmm. do things via Zoom. But the downside is that you perhaps don't get the opportunities to travel that you might have otherwise. Yeah, and it's not really as much the opportunities to travel. I think it's the opportunities to connect in the same way mm. that you can face-to-face, and that's mm. actually kind of relevant. We should prime you for for one of the chapters in the book. But just this idea, you know, there's something about giving a talk in a room full of people and you wrap up and then afterwards the conversations can carry on. Mm. And sometimes that's where the really good conversations happen. But if you give a, a talk at, via Zoom, I always say, you know, you kind of press leave. And then I go and look in the fridge for some validation or talk to my dog. And, and you lose context. So I don't, ha- I don't sort of have any memory of giving those talks, whereas the ones that you give in a room with people, 
you know, it's really special now. <laughs> yeah, you don't know what you've lost until you lose it. I think it, it's, it's a really important thing to keep on doing. Well, we're going to come back to that because we better start with the book and I'm curious hmm. to know. So it is called Baby Brain. Your previous book was the Women's Brain book and mm. it was about health and hormones and happiness. What led to this book? How did it come about? Yeah, it was a sort of three issues that I suppose were three drivers that, that conceived the book. And the first was since my previous book, I had been keeping a really, really close eye on the women's brain health literature and in particular the field is kind of the neurobiology of matrescence, the neurobiology of pregnancy and motherhood. And I did write about that briefly in my first book because when I wrote my first book, the very first paper ever to be published doing research on what happens to women's brains during their first pregnancy was published. And that was kind of around late 2016, early 2017. And the, the research in that was really exciting. We can, we can talk about that. And I've been following that field ever since. And there was just so much great research emerging from that space. And I thought, this just needs to be out there because it's relevant and it's meaningful. And it just gives you so much insight into yourself if you are a parent that we're not necessarily getting. You know, sometimes the science doesn't always give us insights, but I felt this this research did. And there's so many amazing scientists, many of them women, many of them mothers themselves that are driving the research. So I, I wanted to kind of share that with the world. Secondly, I was kind of aware that when women parents talk about their brains, when it comes to motherhood or pregnancy, there's kind of one conversation and that is cognitive decline or forgetfulness. You lose your mind. It's almost as if, as if mm. you are expected to lose your mind. That was there was this world of research out there showing something very, very different, but the conversations were very, very limited. And I even have, I have two teenage boys now, mothers I know, still saying, oh, I've got baby brains, you know, 15 years down the track. And I knew that the research didn't necessarily match up or support that idea. We can get into that paradox in a moment. So that was a sort of second issue. And then the third was, that I never had baby brain. And, and you know, most people who write books is generally something of yourself in it, whether it's something autobiographical or just a question that you're trying to explore about your own experiences. And, and I never had baby brain. It never happened. But I think quite tellingly, I'd never heard about it. I didn't expect that it would be a thing. So it was those, sort of those three ideas that collided. But I thought, oh, you know, I just want to write a book that is going to be really useful and fun and interesting to talk about, about an experience that is shared by so many so many people out there, parenthood. So a little bit of the myth busting that appeared in mm -hmm. your first book as well. And it's interesting you say that because I don't remember having baby brain either. I mean, I also have two, well, I've got a, a teen and a tween sons mm -hmm. now. I don't remember. But yes, I don't think I remember it being a discussion. No, and it wasn't. And your boys are similar ages to mine. And I think there was some research that was published around 2007, 2008, which kind of collated together some of the research that had been done. And there's lots of fields of, of women's brain health, women's health research that are, are quite neglected. There has actually been a bit done in the space around cognitive testing of pregnant women or compare mothers or non-mothers or chart the cognitive decline or not before, during and after pregnancy, there's a reasonable amount out there and enough to kind of collate together into reviews and meta-analyses. 
And some of these were sort of published around 2008. And that was when my first son was born. Mm. So I wasn't paying any attention to the scientific literature at that point, one. And two, it probably hadn't made its way, I guess, into colloquial discussions about what happens. And I think also three, if I had have heard it being a neuroscientist, I probably would have dismissed it outright anyway. <laughs> but it certainly wasn't anything I was aware of. And I, I've always had quite clear, strong memories about phases of my life. I guess I live a lot in my head. There's probably neuroscience around that too we could discuss. But I've, I, I know I didn't have any Ex, one expectation, but any experiences of cognitive decline during that time. And I actually switched jobs during my first pregnancy. I was working as an academic neuroscientist. And then I switched it around when I was about 10 weeks pregnant with my first son into science and health communications within quite a large health communications agency. So I switched careers as well at that time. And I performed well, I believe. <laughs> You like to think I so. didn't feel I wasn't performing. In fact, it was almost the opposite. Yeah. So to set this up, for anyone who perhaps isn't aware of the colloquial term mm. baby brain, what is it? I mean, you mentioned cognitive decline. What, what do people normally yeah. think of when they think of baby brain as a term? So that's a term we, we, it's used here in Australia and there's different terms and different phrases used in different parts of the world. <laughs> the Scottish midwives call it kind of porridge brain. Some people call it mumnesia or momnesia. And it's this, this kind of colloquial phrase used to describe memory loss, lack of attention, feeling foggy, feeling that you can't pay attention, feeling that you walk into a room, you don't know, you know what you walked in there for. And it's interesting because around four out of five women will describe this experience, both during pregnancy and during early motherhood. So it's a quite it's quite common. You pick mm. up a book, what to expect when you're expecting, you'll you'll find a description of it in there. So it's a really common experience. So you know my my anecdote that I didn't experience it is certainly not shared. It's more rare that you don't than what you do. So that's the kind of the colloquial definition of that. Mm-hmm. And so you said you know four out of five women have claimed to have experienced that. Yeah, they'll put their hands up and say, yep, that was me, yeah. both during pregnancy and during early motherhood. Yeah, so is is there a priming type effect? Is that what we think might <laughs> be going on there? I think you've re- we've really got to kind of start teasing it apart before we talk about the priming because that's perhaps an explanation a bit further down the track. So as I said, there's lots of areas of women's health and well research and there has been a reasonable amount of research published in this space whereby you get women before pregnancy, during pregnancy, after pregnancy, a group of pregnant women, a group of non-pregnant women, a group of new mothers, a group of not mothers, kind of dice and slice humans up and you bring them into the lab and it is very, it is reasonably easy to kind of deliver it, what they call a, a cognitive battery of tests. So various types of tests of memory or learning, whether that be remembering a list of words doing mental maths kind of in the moment, getting someone to navigate their way through a maze and then bring them back another day or another time, get them to navigate through that maze again. This is where I started my career as a psychologist. Yeah, yeah. Was doing, there's, lots, doing you that know yeah. there's, lots, there's lots of different ways we can kind of test memory. We can look at long-term, we can look at short-term, we can look at working memory, verbal memory, numerical memory, and we can kind of, you know, here's 10 tests, let's kind of test test you out. And what is really interesting is when you bring women into the lab, we, we should talk about pregnancy and motherhood 
kind of separately because the data does kind of vary slightly. If we look at early motherhood first, because the results there are far clearer, four out of five women will say, yes, I suffered from baby brain, bring those women into the lab. And the cognitive tests will find no evidence of memory loss, whether that be verbal memory, whether that be numerical memory, whether that be spatial memory, whether that be autobiographical memory. And that could be whether you're testing a woman before she was pregnant and during motherhood, or whether you've got, say, a thousand mums and a thousand women have never had a baby. So, so you've got quite a paradox there. You've got four out of five women saying, I suffer from this and this and the mm. data's going, we don't see anything. Mm. So that's kind of interesting. Pregnancy is slightly different in that some studies have found in some of these tests, women in the third trimester of pregnancy might show a slight decline. So there's kind of a small amount of a small amount of a mm. small amount of women in the third trimester of pregnancy maybe in a score, a test that's looking at, say, numerical memory, remembering lists of numbers or doing mental maths, maybe they might remember one number less in a list of 10 compared to women who are not pregnant. But that's not all of the women and it's not all of the tests and it's not all of the studies. Mm. So if we are going to find it, if you really kind of dig down deeply into the data, you'll find it in some women in the third trimester of pregnancy. But again, you've still got the four out of five women, about 80% of women saying, well, I'm kind of suffering here from something, what's going on? Yeah. So there's a real paradox there, I think, between what women are saying they experience and what the researchers are finding in the research lab. And first and foremost, I think this is actually a good thing. This is really good news. Pregnancy and motherhood are not causing cognitive decline. (laughs) That is good to know. Yeah. And people are going, oh, as if that's well, there must be something wrong with the test. Actually, it's quite good that you're not suffering from cognitive decline because I think then we would have a real problem. Because if we were measuring something, you know, there was some kind of measure there where we were seeing a clinical level of decline, like we might see in someone elderly or someone suffering from dementia or perhaps someone with some other kind of cognitive deficit, then there would be real cause for concern. So it's actually a good thing. Mm. We're not necessarily always picking anything up. And if we do pick it up, it's still well within the normal bounds of standard memory. So that's that's kind of the first thing. The next question is then, well, why is there this sort of paradox? Yeah. There's clearly a perception yeah. of a decline, but the evidence isn't bearing it out. Absolutely. So we can say that there is a subjective perception of baby brain, but the objective measures aren't picking that up. And so various researchers have actually gone in and kind of interrogated this paradox. And, you know, there's an entire chapter in the book kind of looking at this and different researchers have approached it in different ways. I'm listening to you as my, with my psychologist hat on because, of course, my automatic bias is to go to subjective experience and then, you know, yeah. I'm starting to think, well, how on earth would they measure subject? Because it is such a complex thing to to measure. So I'm, I'm curious and our listeners might just have to, you know, tolerate us nerding out for a few minutes <laughs> and then we'll come back to what it means for them. Yeah, so there are researchers that have looked at, so we'll go with the subjective experience first and we can look at like the different types of cognitive tests that have been developed to try and explore mm. something different. And then there's a feminist take on this as well. So there's a, there's a researcher, Winnie Orchard, who was in Monash University, Melbourne for her PhD and she's now working in um, Yale in a lab over there run by a woman called Helena Rutherford. And she was really interested in and has interrogated this a lot, this idea of what is happening when we've got a subjective report but an objective lack of, of measure in there? So she's gone in and she's looked above and beyond memory. Instead of just let's instead of continually 
giving women all these tests of cognition, hoping to find something out. Let's take a look at what else is going on in women's mm. lives. So she's got women to report on their general health and well-being. You know, are you feeling socially supported? How stressed are you feeling? Are you feeling that you're not getting enough sleep? Are you feeling <laughs> what anxious? A silly question. Are you feeling depressed? <laughs> who would have thought of asking <laughs> someone who was pregnant or a new mother any of those questions? Are you worried? And, I think you know that's. Are you trying to juggle a whole lot of new information that exactly. you've never had to deal with before? Perhaps and, you know there might be some things going on yeah. here. So she's gone in, and perhaps unsurprisingly, women who reported lower rates of well-being or high rates of anxiety or depression or stress or not feeling socially supported or feeling that they weren't getting enough sleep, they were much more likely to report a subjective experience of baby brain. And that wasn't matched up with the objective measure. Mm, Even mm. when those women were told, hey, we're not finding anything in your test scores, those women who experienced poorer well-being overall were more likely to experience this sort of subjective memory loss versus women who were feeling mentally well, socially supported, they were getting enough sleep, all of that. And that's really telling there. And And this brings you to this idea that you just touched on, there's a lot going on when you're a new mother in particular. And if you're pregnant and you've got other children, et cetera, there's a lot going on. And it's really important to remember that what we remember, our memory depends on a whole host of functions, not just how our brain is functioning at any moment in time, but what information we take in, what we choose to pay attention to. And any new mother will tell you there are 10,000 things that you're trying to remember at any moment of the day. You're on this incredibly steep learning curve learning about this new human who's taken over your life in this new context, you simply can't pay attention to everything that's going on. Mm. And so when you forget something, if you're not feeling particularly great about yourself, you could easily catastrophize that. Mm. And let's be clear, if you know you leave the house and you forget the nappies or you forget the wipes, it is a catastrophe. <laughs> it's not a catastrophe if you leave the house and you forget a box of tissues and you know you're alone. It doesn't matter if you forget snacks and you've got teenagers with you. You know, it's, it's not the same level of, oh gosh, I've forgotten this however will we get through. Mm. So new mothers in particular have an awful lot going on. And when they're not supported, they're not feeling great. You know, they're going to be reflecting on themselves far more poorly. They're probably going to be noticing and honing in on those moments of forgetfulness and going, oh, well, this is kind of what mothers do. We become Mm. forgetful. We become dopey. We lose our minds. Of course, it's just another thing to berate myself over. And so that's, you know, that research is very early days, but there does appear to be something in there. We call it, the you know, you might have heard it being called the mental load of motherhood, mm-hmm. the emotional labor of womanhood or whatever. And there does appear to be a correlation between that well-being and the subjective experience of baby brain. Yeah, okay. And I'm keen to get on to where that for the better part comes into mm-hmm. this as mm-hmm. well, but, but we can get to that. So that has been some of the research looking at some of those other pieces that are going on there. Were there any other unusual findings you've start to kind of widen out some of that research to say, well, yeah. what else could be playing into this? Yeah, well, there's some really interesting research being done by um, an Australian neuroscientist who's now at UCLA called Bridget Callahan, and I spoke to her. And her research is really involved with this idea of childhood development really depends on parental well-being. And if we want to raise healthy infants and children, we need to focus on that kind of that ecosystem of parenting. And she 
just out of kind of curiosity, you started to delve into this idea of baby brain and these messages that we're constantly telling ourselves, um, these sort of cultural and social stereotypes that, you know, our cognitive capacity is not as it, as it should be. So there's a story we're telling ourselves, and she was also very, very aware, as was I when I went into writing the book, that the field of maternal brain research outside of humans, we're looking at animals here, whether they be the little rats and mice of the lab, whether they be primates, whether it be any kind of animal out there in the wild, when you look at the maternal brain and the cognitive function, the performance of new mothers, they're actually better than Mm. the language that they use and the research literature is their virgin sisters, so those those mammals which have not become mothers. And so she thought, well, maybe we're kind of looking at this in the wrong way. Maybe we should be kind of looking at testing women's capacity to remember in a much more kind of ecological concept. So we wouldn't expect a new mother rat to remember a list of grocery items. <laughs> yep. And we wouldn't expect, say, a new wild cat say who's had had kittens a litter of kittens it's probably better to look at it the other way she's going to get better at predation she's going to remember where the prey are she's going to be far more efficient at going out and hunting but we wouldn't expect say a new sheep who's just had a lamb to be better at hunting Mm -hmm. so we maybe we're looking at cognitive testing in the wrong way so she thought she'd take that kind of ecological perspective in and look at the third trimester of pregnancy which is that one time Mm. when a few cognitive tests have detected a decline and design cognitive batteries that perhaps engage new mothers in ways that the standard tests don't. So she was really interested in testing memory of baby-related items. This does <laughs> sound a little bit stereotypical, but she was like, well, what are, you know, what are you doing in the third trimester of pregnancy, especially if it's your first baby? You've got a long list of things. Mm-hmm. You know, you're you stockpiling. Buy your stroller. You might, you know, we had to buy a new car because the old car wouldn't fit the new stroller. And you're researching nappies and you're researching baby creams and wipes and breastfeeding and pumps and everything is baby, baby, baby related because you're probably researching that. So she said, why don't we test uh, these women in the third trimester of pregnancy for baby related items? And lo and behold, when she used that as the kind of cognitive battery, she found that women in the third trimester of pregnancy showed enhanced memory compared Mm -hmm. to non-pregnant women who'd never before been pregnant. So that was kind of interesting. And that may be that idea of that attention filter you know, what are you choosing to pay attention to? Where does your focus lie? You're going to be pretty good at remembering baby-related items, but you might be less good at remembering a list of items, to, you know, to buy office works. So. Yeah, which again, makes sense when you think about, you know, I often have conversations with people who are, especially over these COVID years, when we've been dealing with so much change, so much complexity, and people will berate themselves. Mm and say, I'm not coping, I'm not keeping up, I can't remember stuff, I'm, you know, something's going on. And when we talk about the layers of information that we're required to be processing at any given point in time, you think deep in those COVID moments when so much of our kind of psychological cognitive resource was just being used on keeping half a head full of numbers and statistics and change and then layering all of these other pieces that there is only so much and and that our brains are designed to put this Mm. attentional focus in order to allow us to keep focus on the thing that is most important to us at that moment. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's really what we see. And 
COVID is a really great example of that. And I also had that experience with my family went through the Christchurch earthquakes a decade or so ago. And they were all saying, I can't even read a book because I can't remember Mm, the beginning mm. of the page to the end of the page. And none of that was cognitive decline. It was just feeling overwhelmed and stressed and so much going on. And so what do our brains choose to focus towards what really, really matters? And years ago, this was Donald Winnicott was a kind of a a well-known pediatrician back in the 60s. And he called it maternal preoccupation, this idea that we do become very preoccupied with baby-related things before our baby comes along and thinking, and, you know, we've got a baby that's moving inside Mm. our belly, and especially the first time, that really does take over your mind. And that's not a bad thing either. Takes over your subconscious too, the number of people I know, and I know it happened to me too, having strange dreams about giving birth and what you're giving birth to and you know some very weird so yeah so you know there there is a strong mother nature places that demand on us that we turn our focus towards what matters and by virtue of paying attention to one item and not another we're probably going to forget the other the other Mm. things that are out there so to understand that that process is kind of normal and it's actually and now we also understand the neurobiology underlying that because other research has kind of gone on and said, actually, that really is what is happening during pregnancy, the hormones that we experience, that enormous endocrine surge that we experience during pregnancy literally is re-sculpting and rewiring our brains so that we are tuned to focus in on this new little person which is coming into our lives. So we're going to have a better memory for things that really matter. And that's kind of at this evolutionary mandate to keep this little human alive and why you can't then do that as well as remember every other thing. It's Mm. not cognitive decline. It is just kind of a refocus, a reorganization, a reprioritization. And what we think is when women are brought into the research lab and it's like, here, we sit down and, and scientists are really nice to people who volunteer to take part in their research. It's really exciting when someone wants to come into your lab and take part in your research project. And we're really nice. We like sit down, we'll get you a cup of tea and here's a nice, quiet, calm room. And if you're a mum and you're away from your kids, there's no other distractions, someone's looking after you, well, then you're probably going to be able to ace those scores because you haven't got all of the other demands being placed on you. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's possibly what's going on is certainly what I've kind of started to derive from the literature. Strange what becomes a moment of reprieve in those early days of motherhood. Yes, I'll is. just go sit in a researcher's lab. That feels great. <laughs> yes, oh, for sure. And it was like, I used to love it when you had to go and do those glucose tests. Mm. You know, you had to sit mm. and drink the glucose and you had to sit there for a whole hour. And I remember with my second pregnancy, that was amazing. <laughs> I had to sit here for one hour and not move. Not just, do anything. Not do anything. <laughs> People checked and asked if I was okay. Yeah. So, Sarah, you started talking there a little about this neurobiology piece. So, what what's yeah. actually happening? Do we call it physiologically, neurobiologically? I guess is the term. Yeah, within the yeah. brain. How, in, in as laypersons' terms, as you can manage, <laughs> mm-hmm. and this is your area of expertise. What are some of those changes that are happening that they're seeing? Yeah, I, the changes are, are really interesting and really striking. And one, you know, one reason why. I, was so excited to write this book. So in brief, studies have been done looking at scanning women's brains to look at the structure of their brains and also recording the activity of the brains to see how patterns of activity or connections between areas change over that first pregnancy and then how long they last after that first pregnancy into motherhood. And it's quite important that we're looking at women who are having their very first pregnancy because 
the second and third and fourth pregnancies are different physiological and neurobiological and psychological experiences. Mm. It's really that first one when everything changes, socially, psychologically, <laughs> physically, spiritually, and as it turns out, neurologically. So the, look, if we look at the structure first, and this is what's really interesting, you scan a woman's brain before and after her first pregnancy, you'll see enormously significant changes and the architecture or the structure of her brain, in particular areas of the brain which are involved in empathy and theory of mind, social cognition, reading other people's social cues, what does someone else need, what is someone else thinking, what is someone else feeling. And the structural changes that we see in those brain regions are more than you would see at any other point in the lifespan. They are the most significant structural changes we almost see through any experience or process that any human has, except for during standard childhood development when the brain is growing. And we now understand some various researchers have kind of gone in and said, is it the experience of parenthood or is it the hormones of pregnancy? Is it, you know, mother nature or is it some experiences we're having? And kind of through a series of very clever experiences, kind of whittled it down to, again, we think it's the third trimester and we largely think it's the hormones of pregnancy that are sculpting those brain changes. And what is really cool is those brain changes are then correlated to the experiences that mothers report afterwards in terms of feeling attached to their baby and being able to recognize the sound of their baby's cry or tune into their baby or recognize the emotions in their baby's face. So those structural changes are then directly related to how we respond to our little babies once they come into the world. Wow. That's a yeah. lot. <laughs> and you just yeah. got me you got me thinking, even that notion of having to think about the needs of other people. And and again, you know, there's a whole lot of individual variation on that mm. as to how predisposed we are to do that. Yeah. But when you think I'm thinking, reflecting on my own experience of suddenly having to, yes, be constantly thinking about mm. other people people or another person in particular yeah. but then obviously yeah. as your family grows potentially you've got mm. more people to think about but I'm wondering too whether there's even and again I'm probably looking at this through the psychological lens of whether you are now attuned to start thinking more about other people generally not just these individuals that yeah. you are now responsible for. That may be, and I was really just looking at that dyad because mm. most of the literature has really focused in on the baby as providing the social cue. Because when a baby comes out into the world, it can really only do two things. It can cry or it can kind of be cute. <laughs> and those two cues, cuteness and crying, have, are a very strong social signal. They're actually very, we have a very strong biological and neurological response to babies. And that changes quite strikingly in new mothers after that first pregnancy. It also changes in other caregivers so that's interesting. So a lot of these mm. studies have looked at the brains of the fathers or the, the male partners of the mothers have given birth. They've also, lots of studies have been done interestingly looking at, say, two gay dads, how their brains change, and also foster parents. So I looked at all of that. I looked at like much more kind of diverse families and just this, here's the mm. biological, mm. you know, birth parent and her male partner. Women who have gone through the pregnancy have this very strong biological priming and this neurological shift that we see, this structural change in the brain, which is driven by the hormones of pregnancy. But it doesn't guarantee, because people always say, oh, well, what about mothers who 
don't necessarily show the care required. Mm, mm. What the shift does, what we think is it puts the brain in this real exquisite state of plasticity. It's kind of readiness to learn by experience. So it's almost as if brains are primed to respond to the baby. It's a little bit like another example would be to think all the way back to early childhood when a baby's learning to talk. And we know their brains go through this phase of needing to hear language to be able to learn, mm. but they just absorb it effortlessly. It's a whole lot easier to learn to speak language mm. when you're one versus 48. And, and that's the same with, with mother's brains have been primed by pregnancy to learn to respond to the baby's cue. So there's still a process of learning required, but mother nature has kind of tried to make that learning curve as less steep as possible. Yeah. You can still learn to respond to a baby's cue and the cries and the cuteness if you're the non-birth parent, if you're the father. Um, and studies have been done comparing dads and comparing non-birth parents, which are really interesting too. You don't see the same changes, but you do see them learn via experience too. But the brains aren't primed in the same mm. way. Mm. And so Mother Nature's kind of ensured, because we're mammals, because we birth our babies, and not always, but many women, you know, breastfeed. And, you know, we've got to keep our babies close. We've got to keep them warm. We've got to regulate their body temperature. Are they wet? Are they dry? Are they safe? generally the mammalian mother that does that and so the mammalian mother's brain has been primed by pregnancy to be able to deploy those skills and learn them because we're humans more efficiently than if we're not the birth parent. So there's a degree of that priming and readiness but then we also need to have the opportunity potentially to then act on that and and make use of what nature's readiness for. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And Mother Nature didn't intend for humans to parent alone. You know, we are the type of species that that raises children in groups. You know, we are what are known technically in, in the science literature as allo parents. Not all mammals are, not all animals are, but but humans certainly are. And so there's this idea that we also need to we need to learn by experience. And some, you know, and it's been interesting because studies have been done looking at, say, gorillas in the zoo. And if you've got a gorilla mum who gives birth the first time and she has never experienced seeing a mother gorilla look after an infant gorilla before she won't know what to do Mm. she's not like you know the dog I've got a dog on my floor (laughs) or you know the wild bear or the mouse in the lab that kind of innately know how to look after because they're allo parenting they need to learn by example and some Mm. gorillas in the zoo have never before seen an infant gorilla being cared for they actually get local human mums who are breastfeeding to come and feed in front of that gorilla to show the gorilla what to do. Isn't that fascinating? And we're kind of the same. We still need the people to gather around us and help us learn. Our mother's groups and our community, women's healthcare. (laughs) Midwives, the grandparents, you know, we've always raised children together in Mm. villages. Mm. And so we still need to be shown how to do that. And we still need the support to be able to fulfill that kind of mandate, I suppose, that, mm. that, that way our brains have changed in that way. Mm. That's fascinating. You've just got me thinking mm. about, I remember hatching chicks, little chickens from the, it was the kindergarten, school kindergarten. They had the eggs, you know, they hatched them in the, mm. under yeah. the incubator and what have you. And so we'd got these chickens who were a week old. They'd never seen another chicken other than the other eggs that had hatched alongside mm. them. And I watched them as they did all the things that chickens have to do. This wasn't necessarily relating to motherhood, but, you know, there was a point at which they all learned to hop up and stand on a, it was a stick that I'd put in their enclosure mm. just to roost because that's what, mm. you know, chickens do. They have to get up mm. high. So there was this kind of innate 
understanding yeah. of this is what I do, even though I've never seen another creature do this and I don't know why I do it. But you're saying yeah. for some of our, you know, for humans and indeed perhaps the great apes, some of those instincts aren't as innate as we might have thought as they were. we might think yeah mm. and I think and actually the chapter after one where I wrote a memory was really trying to then interrogate and explore this idea are maternal instincts real mm. are they something that is innate to us or is it something completely learned or is it just this term that's just thrown at us to make us feel bad if we don't <laughs> if we're not as good at it yep. <laughs> yeah and it was interesting because when I was writing the book there was a um, an article that was published in the New York Times that had this very provocative title, of course, designed to get everyone to read it. And it said maternal instinct is a myth that men created. And it kind of argued that this was this phrase which was created by men to kind of keep women in the house. And that, you know, if you don't have it, there's something wrong with you. And I think it's a really interesting idea to consider and interrogate. And people kind of came at that article, you know, you go and read the comments and looked at the kind of the discussions around that afterwards. And then also the discussions within the, the neuroscience literature and psychology literature in that space. So was maternal instinct something innate to a birthing parent whereby you have your baby, you will feel absolute love and joy and you'll kind of know what to do the moment they're born? Or is this just something that people have fooled us into thinking? And so part of what I did for the book so I said, I've got to like, this can't be all about my experiences because mm. I'm just one person who's had two babies once. I surveyed all my newsletter followers and I, and I asked them to sort of help me out. You know, what is your experience of baby brain? What was your experience of sleep, of social support, et cetera? And I asked, what does that term maternal instinct mean to you? And that was really interesting because I sort of noticed two things. One, it's sometimes the arguments come down to definitions, right? Mm. Some people took maternal instinct to mean what you might also call your biological clock, that like drive to have babies. People say, I never had maternal instinct, so I chose never to have children. And others would be like, I never thought I would have maternal instinct until I had my babies. So it was almost as if it was something that exists before you have babies. Mm, mm. And others would be, as soon as my baby was born, I felt I'd known them my whole life. And their personal experience then colours how they define maternal instinct. Whereas there are a lot of women who, you know, would talk about feeling guilty or bewildered or numb and they'd have this baby and they'd be like, I don't know how I'm meant to feel. And they would feel terrible if they didn't have maternal instinct. Whereas others would be like, look, I just think the term is kind of a bit silly. Perhaps it's around learning from the other people around you, how to take care of a baby and we hang on this word, and it doesn't necessarily mean anything. So it was really interesting to see how people's perception of whether maternal instinct is a real thing was coloured by, often by their experiences mm. within those first few hours of days of, of looking after a newborn. And those experiences varied from like complete numbness to absolute, you know, euphoria and joy and every, everything kind of in between. So your experiences always colour your, your perceptions of of these words. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think my early experiences, those first few days was just complete overwhelm and coping mode would be my best way to put it. But again, you know, there were a set of external circumstances around that as well. I, I was in Sydney at the time. I had my baby at Prince of Wales, private, lovely hospital of that, but it was when the Pope was visiting Sydney oh, and the whole gosh. of our, <laughs> the, basically the whole city and that whole precinct because the Pope was speaking at 
Randwick Racecourse, which was next door, the whole precinct shut down. And so the hospital was on skeleton staff and, you know, probably my experience, yeah. if I'd had my baby a week prior or a week after, would have been different Yeah, yeah. again. And my own personality, I think there was an element of Absolutely. that too. Mm. Yeah. And the context of these experiences that we think are really biological matter. Mm. And I think what's interesting as well, and this probably kind of can lead on to other discussions. So with my first son, it was pretty standard birth, but you know, it still wasn't pleasant. And then he kind of arrived, he's very large and he's still, he's Fourteen, he's six foot four. He's always been very big, uh, and he's always been a good eater. So he was actually pretty straightforward to look after. But it was still his first baby. I was like, "What has happened?" And then I always remember they came to do the heel prep test to test the blood to see whether there's any genetic abnormalities that need to be dealt with straight away. And I remember they prepped his heel, and he screamed, and I just felt like my soul had been turned inside out. And I, f- I reckon it was the first time in my life I felt true empathy. It wasn't just like his heel had been pricked. It was like someone had torn out my heart. You know, and I'd always, you know, my husband had a sore back and I'd be like, oh, you should do your exercises. And, you know, my dad had his hips replaced and I'd be, oh, gosh, poor you limping about. But <laughs> this was something different. Mm, mm. And I don't, was that maternal instinct was that hypervigilance. And I think that this is kind of what's interesting is that especially for our new babies and the data will show it's different for a first baby versus a second because both your your experience plays into your biological responses as well, is that we are super hypervigilant. You know, we're kind of on edge. Lots of women find it very, very hard to sleep. You're sort of in this heightened state of hyperarousal almost. And so anything that happens to your baby, you're kind of responding to and that can kind of carry on and so studies have been done there's one particular researcher Pil Young Kim who's in Colorado has looked at this experience of this kind of hypervigilance and this constant thinking about the baby and the preoccupation with the baby as if something's going to go wrong and she's found it's very 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 common to have this fear of your baby falling out the window or down the stairs mm. and I was like just me. <laughs> yeah, I'm just listening to this thinking, I wish I'd known all of this stuff beforehand. Yeah. I would have been far more compassionate with myself. Yeah, I remember having this balcony. We were like on a second floor apartment. You walked up the stairs and there was this balcony, this beautiful view out of Sydney, over Sydney Harbour. And I remember like, I can't even go into the room with the doors that lead out <laughs> to the balcony because he might fall off. And I remember just being convinced. And I had another friend who had a baby at the same time. And she said she remembers standing at the edge of her kitchen. There was a carpet and the kitchen floor was tiled. And she thought, I can't take my baby onto the tiles because I'll drop him and his head will crack open. And those thoughts are so common and so not discussed. And perhaps what is underlying that is this hypervigilance that new mothers, especially first-time mothers, experience. And Pilly Young Kim has sort of charted that um, and then it kind of peaks around the first couple of weeks after birth and then sort of tails off by about the seventh week postnatally, the super hypervigilance. It's when it carries on and it starts to interfere with your day-to-day life. So you can't sleep mm. when the baby sleeps. You're constantly filled with catastrophic thoughts and fears and worries. You'll do something to the baby. Something terrible will happen to the baby. That's when we sort of start to see perhaps the emergence of these postnatal and particular anxiety disorders. Mm. But for that first baby, it actually starts off, it's almost like kind of we're biologically primed to be on alert and keep our baby safe and make sure nothing happens to mm. it. And I think if we understood that and understood that those intrusive thoughts are normal, we're told about baby blues, 
but we're not told about the fears of the baby falling out the window. No, no, and people don't talk about it. And I think even the nature of those... There's so much shame, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, look, a lot of shame, a lot of guilt. And I think the term intrusive thoughts is really an apt one mm. there. I mean, it's a term that we use a lot in psychology across, you know, when it comes to mm. unhelpful thinking and, and the point at which that then becomes perhaps a, a clinical issue. Yeah, But, yeah. yes, just this inability to control your thoughts about risks and harm to a baby yeah, that seem, yeah. they are both deeply logical and deeply illogical at the same time. Yeah. And yeah. if we knew or discussed or just had a little more education about the fact that that was normal, it would probably cause people an awful lot less stress and, and just open up the conversation yeah. to be able to say, you know, sure. to be able to say to your partner, I just can't get these thoughts out of my head without that person then looking at you like, Oh. Have you lost your mind? Yeah. Which isn't going to help. Sure the baby's not going to fall off the balcony, but that's not really what it's about. And no. I think you'll be so familiar with this: the thoughts and emotions that we have are so influenced by our bodily responses. And when you've gone through pregnancy, you know your body's going through this enormous mm. shift. I remember my heart rate being so high and all of these panicky feelings, which are really just my body kind of adjusting to not being pregnant, coming home. And I think that's what's interesting is I'm like, oh, maybe that was that's maternal instinct. So some women may be going, well, that was my instinct was to keep my baby safe. Other people may not think that that's what maternal instinct should be. So they say, it doesn't happen. It's not real. Other people may not experience any of that. And certainly with second babies, it's far less common because you've clocked up here. You've clocked up more than 10,000 hours of experience. Yeah, yeah. By the time the next baby comes along, your brain has gone through that enormous neurological shift you've kind of settled into motherhood in a way. You've gone through that, you know, they call it process matrescence, which I just think is such a great word to describe it being a process. You've kind of got to work through that. And perhaps to understand that some of those experiences that we have are not failings of you as what a mother should be, because there's so many shoulds, aren't there? Mm -hmm. But more understanding it's just kind of our biology adjusting and being totally tuned and being able to think about nothing else about your babies, you know, that kind of helps. Yeah, it's important. <laughs> it helps with learning their their cries and their cues and focusing in on keeping this little human safe because there's no one else that's, I mean, maybe you've got other people around helping, but often there's just the mother there who really has to focus on keeping that wee baby alive and that's kind of what the babies need from us too. Mm. And it's so fascinating and, and so exciting, I think, too, for me now further down the path. I mean, my eldest is also 14. And to see some discussion around the experience of the mother, and I'm hoping this is kind of lending itself to yeah. more preparation for young new mothers yeah. as to what to expect, because I know when, well, it's my memory. I'm not going to say I know because who knows anymore, but it's my memory yeah. that, you know, there was an awful lot of learning and available resource about the baby, what the baby needed, how you yeah. do this with the baby, how you do that for the baby, how to respond to a cry, how to do this, but nothing really about what you would go yeah. through as an individual yeah. Yeah. and this experience. There weren't those same stories out there. I think it's really interesting as well. Some of the brain imaging data has looked not just at the structural changes but the functional or connective changes so instead of taking a photo of a brain seeing what it looks like we can take a movie of it in action and there's one particular brain network called the default mode network and a network's kind of like different brain areas kind of communicating and talking kind of comes online when you're thinking about yourself or imagining the future or remembering the past you're not solving a problem you're not reading mm. a book you're not 
tending to a baby, just kind of mind daydreaming mm, and wandering. Mm. And that shows quite significant changes in how it functions in new mothers as well. Now, whether how it, that's driven by hormones or whether that's just driven by, we have to, it's a sense of self changes too. And we see that play out neurologically in brain scans. New mothers' sense of self-network is altered too. So, you know, we need to kind of be kind on ourselves. We can't just bounce back mm, mm. and go back to where we were because we, we literally are a, you know, our sense of self has shifted. We're a new person. Who we are now is almost constantly, we're a little ecosystem with us, a little human, and our brains have evolved to ensure that not to go back to what we were before. Yeah, and that is, a again, I'm going to say a lifelong process. For me, it's been a 14-year process, but realising that you you can never be the person that you were. And I suppose that's the same with any life-altering experience, isn't it, that you can never really return to the person that you were. But to know that that's not just psychological, emotional, experiential, but it's also, in this case, biological, neurological you know, there's, yeah. there's just multiple processes involved yeah. in us yeah. shifting. And, and I guess, yeah, that term, what was it? Matrescence. 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 It's like adolescence. Yeah. 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 Adolescence is a process of those teenage years, you know, the social and emotional and psychological and neurological and physical changes that teenagers walk through. And it's the same with, with motherhood. We, we It's a process that we have to kind of walk through. And if we can support women to understand that that's a process that you're moving through not something that we should be fighting against yeah and I always used to say you know my boys my boys were so straightforward they still pretty much are they were straightforward babies they fed well they put on weight they did everything when they were meant to they slept well I had a supportive husband we didn't have a lot of other social support around us but everything was as good as it could be and I was still like what who is the person who I've become? I kind of felt like there were a lot of shoulds about who I should be as a mother. I would always say, it's, they're fine. It's me, that's, mm. it's me that I've got to come to terms with. Mm. And little did I know that that was a process. And I always, it's almost like kind of now, I don't know, because our boys are the same age. I feel like I'm, I've got my feet. Mm. Even though they're teenagers, and this is such, I love being a, the mum of teenage boys. It's so much fun, so funny and fun. I feel like I've kind of finally found, finally found my feet. Maybe that's why I could write a book about it. Yeah, you were ready. Because I've finally got perspective instead of being in the midst of it. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. And I, I should just say, you know, we're talking about having been parents now for a decade and a half. The, the brain scanning studies have been done of women in midlife and also elderly mothers say, do these, are these brain changes that we see permanent? And it turns out they are. Yeah, but that's so going to be my next question. Elderly mothers, women in their 70s and 80s who have had babies compared to women who never had any babies, who one, never were pregnant and never raised children, should say. And as I say, the traces of pregnancy and childbirth remain in the brains. They are retained. So those changes are lifelong. So, you know, that process of being a mother, it doesn't sort of begin and end with pregnancy in the fourth trimester. It's kind of permanent. And I think that's kind of nice, you know. My boy's always on my mind. Mm. And I like to think I'm still on my mum's mind. She tells me I am. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that, I think that's that's really interesting to see that those changes are retained. And do we know anything about what the functional benefits of what those changed brains might be? Yeah, there's a little bit of research looking at that and some, there's some really cool data that 
there's a researcher, Anne-Marie DeLang, who I, I meet in the book, who's Norwegian, has trawled through data from these biobanks and does this kind of big data analysis. She's pulled a lot of data out of the UK biobank, which has got you know, hundreds of thousands of people enrolled in that. We've got everything from their brain scans to their life studies to blood tests. We kind of know everything about their biology. And she's looked at the brains of midlife and elderly women to see are they healthier, are they unhealthier, what can we kind of tell, are they more or less likely to develop diseases of ageing, like Alzheimer's disease, et cetera, et cetera. And we know that on average women live a little bit longer than men, but motherhood doesn't appear to be the determining factor in that longevity or not. But on average, women who have up to four babies have slightly younger looking brains than women who have zero babies. So there does appear to be some protective effect of having had pregnancies and raising children on resilience to aging. Mm. It's only about sort of six months to a year. And Anne-Marie says, you know, because she doesn't have children. And she said, I have, you know, I'm not trying to scare women and say that's <laughs> the only way you can have a healthy brain is go out and have yeah, children. Yeah. The message is not that because there's lots of ways you can promote brain health, especially later in life. But she talks a bit about that. But there does appear to be up to four children. There does appear to be a anti-aging effect on women's brains and it's interesting because once you have more than four children that washes away because we think more than four children just adds stress <laughs> the queen did it right the queen well she was born into the right postcode she obviously had good genes yeah. she only had four kids she obviously had every support system around it she also worked till the day before she died didn't mm. she so she mm. did all of the right things she's a great role model mm. but four children is interesting up to four children you see anti-aging effects in the brain but after that it, it, kind of washed away. <laughs> yeah yeah that's a mm. diminishing return type situation yeah. at that point the book itself is available from the 26th of april and we will put the link to the show notes and you will be doing the rounds of all the various media outlets she said you've got a number of yeah. podcast conversations coming up so lots of opportunity for people to listen and learn mm. and obviously yeah get the book itself and have a read or have a listen if it mm. will it be an audio book at some stage do you know <laughs> i laugh yes there'll be an audio book however i'm not narrating the book <laughs> because as it turns out i try i, I laughingly say i publishers will kill me I got fired from my audio book it's really hard to read your own book out loud as it turns out so I have the most amazing professional voice artist who will be narrating my book there is an audio book coming out and the voice in it is beautiful and should carry you through the narrative (laughs) I just apparently sounded like I was doing a voiceover in a science documentary or so anyway, it's really hard. <laughs> but I do encourage people to listen to the Audible. The message is in there. It's just not me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and I think too, I was just thinking about, you know, the audience for this particular topic being yeah. potentially busy mothers who are trying to find ways, sure. where can I fit my learning in around? Yeah, yeah. And it's walking the dog and it's driving the car. And Yeah, what I, I, there's, there's the kind of the gist of each chapter summarised at the end with some little bullet points and lots of subheadings so you know if you really just pick the book up you can just flick to the end of each chapter and scan your way through the the, the tldr too long didn't read i called it the gist the gist gist. i think um, if there was something else i would add yes you know i've talked a lot about mothers the birthing parent research has been done on the fathers of these babies as well to look to see how men's brains change and often they're used as the control in these studies 
So how does a woman's brain change before and after her first pregnancy, but how does her male partner's brain change? And that's useful to tease out, is it parenting or is it pregnancy? Mm. And compared to the woman, the male's brains did not change at all. But studies have gone in and like, let's get a few more dads involved and let's compare the, the father's brains. And there are slight, slight, slight structural changes. There are definitely changes in how brains respond to babies, but there are slight changes in the structure of the father's brains. But interestingly, it's dose dependent, depending how involved they are with the childcare. Because of course, the biological father of a baby could never meet the baby or be the yeah. caregiver. So that was interesting. So the changes that were seen in the men's brains are dose dependent. And I think that was that's really interesting because anyone's brain can change in response to caregiving. So all of us, regardless of our biological role and the, the, the kind of arrival of that child earth side, can learn to love and care that baby as mm. if it was its own. Studies have also been done looking at adoptive mothers, the non-birth mother, and uh, foster mothers to look to see how do these people's brains change in response to babies. And they don't show the same structural changes, but they certainly show responses to babies, which you couldn't tell whether that was the birth mother or not. And that's great because, you know, humans are allo parents. We want as many loving caregivers involved in that baby's care as possible. So I think that's one really important message in there is that pregnancy is great, but that's not the only way a baby can be loved or cared for. And there was a wonderful, I had so many amazing people share their stories about parenting and you, you can read read about them as, as you go through the book. And I had a couple of foster and adoptive mothers wrote the most beautiful, beautiful stories about meeting their babies and the connections that they have with their babies and just the ability to be able to love and care and attach and nurture that baby. Um, it didn't matter whether, you know, mm. whether that's birth baby or not. And I think that was that's really interesting and really important. One, to recognise that there is research out there in that space. It's included in the book and just to open up the, the conversation, a lot of this is around parenthood and parenting, not just birth motherhood. Mm, and I love that idea of opening up the conversation because even, you know, when we started at the beginning of this conversation, you talked about how relatively recent a lot of this research is into even, well, the female brain and, and yeah. your previous book and the fact that it's been a long neglected area of research, mm. but to be able to now say, well, this is just part of opening up this conversation about what are the changes that yeah. parents, families, yeah. and you could broaden it out then potentially even to communities and, and whether there's Absolutely. a structural change happening in a mm. brain that is about priming, that's the leading the, the horse to the water, but you mm. know, there's a whole lot of stuff that then goes on after that. Mm. that may result in brain changes, will certainly result in behaviour changes and mm. experience. Mm. And if we view it through that, you know, this is this is early days, this is exciting, this is where the research can, yeah. you know, continue to explore and we can learn more rather than thinking of it as a, this is a definitive, this is where we're at, yeah. then, you know, who knows where it might lead, what else we might discover. Yeah, and the, and the research is not saying here's what happens to babies when they're born or here's what happens to the birth mom. It's really about, it's about a relationship. Mm. And, you know, our minds change, our brains change, our bodies change, our social networks change because this, if there's, if there's another person involved. And so often we've tended to study humans in sort of isolation. And there's this whole world out there about 
human optimization and how can I improve myself. Yeah. But this is a story <laughs> about how relationships and the neuroscience shows that the brain changes are to the networks of the brain that are involved in tuning into someone else and loving someone else and needing someone else and seeking out that little baby and comforting them when they cry and reading their social cues. And, you know, I haven't had a chance to talk about the research which shows the synchrony between parents and their children and how that carries through the lifespan. That idea that we, you know, my boys are always in the back of my mind, my biology has shifted and it's still shifting and it's still interacting and engaging with them. And that's about other people. And I think that so often we forget how important other people are to our biology. Yeah. And certainly that's what I think the story of matrescence is about. It's about relationships. It's not about us becoming optimized to become better mothers or, mm. or anything mm. like that. It's about how other people shape us and how we are shaped by pregnancy to, to care and love and, and nurture them. So, you know, we shape them and they shape us. And it's, mm. And I sometimes think that that relationship is lost in a lot of the stories that are out there at the moment, the way we kind of talk about health and well-being is it's a very individualistic pursuit. And I hope the science of motherhood shows that it's not. It's a story of belonging. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Sarah, thank you so much. As always, it's always a joy to speak to you and I've learned a lot. And like I said, I think if I'd known some of this stuff 15 years ago, some of my experience would have been different. But I'm excited for the women who are hearing it now as they start that journey. I'm so glad I can share that. And I have to say, selfishly, understanding a little bit about the neurobiology of adolescence, that other big phase of life, has just helped me so much in parenting my teenage boys. So I hope that this will help give new parents at the start that, you know, that good start to parenthood that mm. I, I feel I've finally reached and achieved. Maybe, you know, it will help some new mum somewhere. I have no doubt that it will and, and new dads and new yeah, families, and new, I think. Exactly. Sarah, yeah. we will put all of the details to the book and of course yourself and I didn't we didn't even talk about all the other exciting things you do like being an online educator and the um, cool stuff even if you follow listeners if you follow Sarah's Instagram account and social media channels there's always a wealth of little easy to conceive easy to understand tidbits of brain <laughs> and behavior information in there which I know is valued by all of your followers, including myself. So we'll have all of those links, all of the information about the book, where you can find Sarah. And yeah, we'll look forward to perhaps hearing back from some of the mothers. I'm sure you will, Sarah, hearing back from some of the mothers who are reading your book, learning about a bigger picture piece to new parenthood that perhaps we missed out on. Thank you. Thanks for the invite. Thank you for listening to that conversation with Dr. Sarah Mackay with me. I am frequently reminded as I nerd out with scientists or read or listen to their work, just how that work is so fundamental to shaping the way we understand topics and issues and our own experiences. I know that my experience as a new mother 15 years ago would have been different if I knew about the way that pregnancy was shaping my brain and the way that Sarah's just explained to us. I couldn't do anything to change it. I wouldn't want to, but I would have had a better understanding of my own experience of those early days and weeks. And I really do think that would have helped me perhaps with (laughs) 
that experience and the overwhelm that came with it. So if there's a new parent or an about to be new parent in your life, maybe suggest they have a listen to this episode and my conversation with Sarah. And of course, let them know about Sarah's book, Baby Brain, the surprising neuroscience of how pregnancy and motherhood sculpt our brains and change our minds for the better. It is out now and it's available everywhere you buy books and there is an audio version coming soon. Now, a little update on the podcast. If you're a long-time listener, you might have noticed that we started the potty as a weekly show and we kept that up for ages. And then we had a pandemic and the schedule, like life itself, just got a little ad hoc. And we've been trying to get back to something more regular and consistent this year. And so we aimed for weekly. We discovered that there's too much else going on in life at the moment still. And so we've landed on monthly with new episodes coming out on the first Wednesday of each month. So please, if you haven't already, hit subscribe or follow in your podcast player and those new episodes episodes will be lined up and ready for you to listen to as soon as they hit the air. And if you want to get social with us, we're on Instagram and LinkedIn and Facebook, and you can watch the video of each episode of the Potential Psychology Podcast on YouTube. Plus, we now have YouTube Shorts, which is kind of fun. So go search Potential Psychology wherever you like to hang out in the digital realm. And until next month, huge big thanks to my team, Jay and Sherry and Andy for their work on this episode to bring it to your ears. A huge thanks to Sarah as my fabulous guest for this conversation. And of course, a very heartfelt thanks goes to you for listening in. We love having you as part of our potential psychology community. Go forth, fulfill your potential, and we'll look forward to seeing you soon.